Well, give me one more hour, folks. We'll see what we can do here. Hey, that's all your body, your blood goes into your brain, I mean into your stomach to help digest your food, I guess. I hope it doesn't go actually into your stomach, but it goes around it. start with the ninth chapter of Isaiah and uh, maybe take you through that in another hour or so and we'll pray after that. I wrote an article on uh, this passage. It was published by uh, Standard back many years ago. <clears throat> on Christmas. It's kind of a Christmas section, if you look at it one way. This this passage right here was on the top of a pile of papers that, uh, I'll give you his whole name, Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel. Handel, Handel, rather. <laughs> Handel. Well, George, let's see, George Friedrich, well, Handel, anyway. He's the guy who wrote the Messiah. Remember Handel's Messiah? Hallelujah, chorus, and all that. But this passage right here is the one that caught his interest. He came, he'd been out wandering in the streets trying to get a job, and he couldn't find a job, and came back to his room and one of his friends had looked up all the messianic passages in the Bible and left a stack of papers on his desk about that big. And he came in and saw this one right on top. He started with this one. To us a son is born. Remember? Uh, and went ahead and wrote the entire Messiah in two weeks. Never left his, never left his room in two weeks. And the first time it was ever done, it was done before the King of England. And during the Hallelujah Chorus, the King stood. And when the King stands, everybody stands. And that started the tradition of standing during the Hallelujah Chorus. What an incredible work. Uh, it's over an hour long. I don't know if you've ever listened to the, the whole thing, but you can find... Uh, DVDs of it, find uh, CDs of it. Uh, marvelous. Now, verse 19 of chapter 8 is where I want to start. Uh, Isaiah 8:19. When people tell you to consult mediums and spiritists, who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? It's called necromancy. Necromancy is uh, the Greek word for dead and the Greek word for speech. 
And so it's, it's speaking to the dead on behalf of the living. And that's what he's talking about here. These people were coming into Israel from the east. Uh, they were Hindus. They were Buddhists. Uh, they were of that kind of background, probably not Buddhists yet, but there were Hindus in the world. And they were coming in with this palm-reading, spiritist attitude. And uh, Isaiah's warning them against that. He said, shouldn't you ask God instead of asking these spiritists? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? When people talk to the dead, they're really not talking to the dead. You probably know that. Unless it's just a con game uh, where they're just, they have a, a great information network that's found out everything about everybody in the room or one or two people in the room and they pick on those people and they tell them all about themselves and they tell them that they're in touch with somebody who has died and they want to tell, you know, that kind of thing. That's a con game. But there are actual necromancers who speak, they think, to the dead and talk with the dead, and the dead return information to them, and they pass it on to the, to the relatives. But they're not talking to the dead. They're talking to demons who have uh, impersonated the person who has died. Uh, it's very dangerous. Uh, I don't know if any of you have read anything by Ben Alexander. Uh, but he wrote a book called Out of the Darkness in which he talks about his own experience. He started at age five having apparitions. Uh, he saw his grandmother who was dead. She came alive out of a picture on his wall. And then he became a necromancer. He became, uh, he had two familiar spirits that went with him everywhere. And he, they had accused, or they had uh, informed him that they were good spirits. But in reality, of course, they were demons. And he would do everything they said, and for many years he did, until finally one day he saw a sign that said a revival at a church. This was back in the 50s. And uh, he went into this church, and the demon said, we don't want you to go in there. And he said, well, I'm going in. And they said, well, we'll, we'll wait out here. So he went inside, and it was an Assembly of God church. And he heard the gospel and believed it and was baptized and went back outside Never saw those demons again. Never experienced anything like that again. And so he tells his story in the book, Out of the Darkness. Uh, I know Ben. He's a really nice little old guy. He's probably close to 90 years old now. Uh, he came out of a Jewish background and now is a deeply committed Christian. But he admits that it was demon, demonology that he was involved in and not anything Christian. <coughs> and then verse 20 Isaiah says, to the law and to the testimony. If they don't speak according to that word, they have no light of dawn. And then here's the result when they don't speak according to the word of God. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged. And looking upward, will curse their king and their God. Then they will look down toward the earth and see only darkness and distress and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into outer darkness. Outer darkness, that's one of Jesus' images of hell. 
he uses several images. He uses the word Gehenna, which was the garbage dump of Jerusalem where there were always smoldering fires. He uses that as an image of hell. He uses the outer darkness as the image of hell, and he uses fire itself as an image of hell. So, in the midst of this utter darkness that chapter 8 ends with, Isaiah says, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but now in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. If you know the map of the Holy Land, you know that Galilee is way up at the top, and that's where Zebulun and Naphtali are, these two. Naphtali is actually the pronunciation of it, but uh, Zebulun and Naphtali are up in Galilee, and so he's talking about Galilee. If you read Mark's gospel or the other gospels, you'll discover that most of Jesus' ministry was in Galilee. He avoided Jerusalem whenever he could. He would go to Jerusalem for the, for the feasts, and then he would always be attacked for what he was teaching, but he spent most of his time in Galilee. So here's what he says. But in the future, he will honor Galilee, it was called Galil Hagoyim by the Jews, Galilee of the Gentiles, by the way of the sea along the Jordan. So if you look up north, God's, Jesus is going to be up at the northern end of the Jordan River by the Sea of Galilee. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Now this is Isaiah predicting what he saw. It's kind of funny. He saw it in the past, but he predicts it in the future. And last night when we were talking about chapter 3, the past, present, and future, the word that's used in every verse, there's a verb form used in every verse there. It's called historical uh, prophecy, uh, prophetic, uh, perfect is what they call it. And that means that it's past tense. He already saw this, but now he's telling you what he has seen. For him, it's past, but for everybody else, it's still future. And so that's the same thing he's doing here. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. So here's an image of Jesus. Light. What gospel talks about that? The opening of John's gospel Again, John is symbolic, so he doesn't talk about shepherds or angels or wise men. He talks about the light that enlightens everyone is coming into the world. John 1.9, the light is entering the world. John 1.5, the light is shining in the darkness. And the darkness cannot take it down. It's literally a... A wrestling term. The darkness cannot conquer the light, cannot destroy the light. So an image of light here, light in the land of the shadow of death. And this could be a reference to the whole world because all of us live in the shadow of death. All of us. You have enlarged the nation. This is, this is the, a future prediction again, spoken in past tense. You've enlarged the nation. You've increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as people rejoice when they're dividing the plunder. 
For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors. Now let's stop a minute. What's Midian's defeat? What happened on that day? Yeah, he was actually threshing wheat in a in a grape uh, a place where the grapes are usually harvested. And the angel came to him and, and just tongue in cheek, you can see the humor of God. The angel comes to him and says, "Hail, mighty warrior!" And he says, "Right, I'm a mighty warrior, and here I am hiding in a wine vat to take care of my wheat, so the enemy won't take it away from me." And then God talks him into attacking Midian. Midian's the largest invading army that Israel ever saw up to that point. Uh, it's described as their camels being as many as the sand of the seashore. They had uh, thousands of people and they had spread out in this huge valley where they were camping. And Gideon, if you know the story, you know he tested God several times. He just he had a hard time believing. His faith was weak. And uh, God told him, um, he said, Lord, uh, don't be angry, but tonight when, it, when the dew falls, let the dew fall only on this fleece and let it be dry around the fleece. And so that morning he gets up and he rolls the fleece out and it's full of dew. And there's so much water that he fills a couple bowls with it. So the next night he said, Lord, don't be angry. Let the dew fall around it this time and not on it. So the next day it was like that. Fleece was dry, but the ground around it was wet. He still didn't believe. And uh, so God said, go down, you and your friend, and sneak up to the enemy camp and listen. So he went down and heard an enemy soldier prophesy. One of the guys said, I had a dream last night. I dreamed there was this big loaf of bread rolling through our camp and mashing all the tents flat. And the other enemy soldier standing there listening to this said, must be talking about Gideon. And then Gideon believed. And he went back and got together an army of 32,000 men to attack this gigantic force that had invaded. And God said, that's too many men. He said, let them go down by the river and drink. Well, tell the ones that want to go home they can go home. And so 22,000 of them leave, and there's 10,000 guys left. And God said, the army's still too big. Remember the story? And he said, tell them to go down the river and drink. And the ones that hold their weapons in one hand and pick up the water in the other and drink out of their hand, keep them. And the ones that get down and lap the water up like dogs, send them home. So he sent home all but 300 men. And God said, now here are the weapons I want you to use. I want you to take a big, uh, big clay jug, a burning torch, a trumpet, and I want you to go up around the mountains, around this great army, surround them. And when you get a signal from Gideon, break the jar, hold up the flaming torch, shout and blow the trumpet. And if you can imagine, an army camped at leisure down in the valley and they hear this all around them and then they see these torches flickering. And then they hear trumpets blowing, 300 trumpets and 300 men shouting, a sword for Yahweh and for Gideon. They jumped up 
and they attacked each other and chased each other out of the land and not one of them was left alive. I guess the last two must have gone at the same time with their sword. Destroyed the army and God's people marched into the camp and looted the camp. Now folks, that's what he's talking about here. As in the day of Midian's defeat, you have been sh- uh, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulder, the rod of their oppressor. The yoke is something an ox wears, or a couple of oxen, to pull a cart. It, the, the yoke enslaved Israel, and he said that slavery is broken. And then he says in verse 8, or I'm sorry, verse 5, Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. In other words, all weapons, all items of armor are going to be destroyed. He's predicting here the end of war. Now, let me, let me explain what happens. How many of you have driven up to the, to the Rocky Mountains, like in Colorado, and you see... A big mountain coming close. And you think, man, that's huge. But then when you get around behind it, you see that there are others that are snow-capped that are even bigger. Well, that's what he's seeing here. He's seeing the mountains that are closest to him, and the first thing he sees is the end of war and the destruction of the enemy the way Midian was destroyed. But then the next thing he sees is why that happened. And that's verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called a child, a son is given. How could we say this to us, a child is born? I remember... uh, watching a movie about one of the kings of England and he kept trying to have sons through his wives and I don't know if it was Henry VIII or which one but he killed several wives and then finally one of his wives became pregnant and she gave birth to a son and when the midwives saw the son they came running out and said we have a son and I thought we, we have it's the king's son that causes Isaiah to say, to us, a son is born. To us, a child is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. He will rule, and he will be called. And these are the names by which he will be called. When I was in Israel, I noticed up over the door of uh, Hebrew Union University that this phrase was there in Hebrew. What's that? Well, he just says he will be called. So I don't know if you would say this is the name or these are all names for this child. But what we have here is a bunch of nouns in the Hebrew text. Uh, it was written up over the door from right to left, the way Hebrew is written. Pele yo el gibor aviad sar shalom. And that's the title here. He will be called, first of all, Wonder. Let me just write these names up here. 
There's several ways you can look at this word, but this means something out of the ordinary, something very unusual. When I look at this word, I think of Jesus and I think of the virgin birth. You talk about unusual. That's a wonder. That's something that's happened only once. I had a doctor in a church in Illinois when I served, the uh, first church I ever served. I was interim minister for six or eight months at uh, Altamont, Illinois. You've never heard of. And uh, people, uh, this doctor came to me and said, do you really believe in the virgin birth? And I said, yes, I do. He said, well, I don't. I was in a bowling alley at the time. And he said, uh, I said, do you believe in the resurrection? And he said, oh, yeah. And I said, well, do you believe that Jesus came into the upper room even though the doors were locked? He said, well, yeah. And I said, do you believe that God could put a man through a wall, but he can't put a seed through a membrane in a woman? And he said, never thought of it that way. <laughs> it's an incredible wonder. You know, all drone bees, all male bees are born virgin, born. They have only the Y chromosome. Why, you ask? They have only the Y chromosome because they come only from the queen. There's no male involved in it. The only reason there is a drone bee is so he can mate with the female and produce more bees. And all the bees that are produced, all the workers, are female. And the men don't do anything except have sex with the queen and go away and die. Uh, every male bee is virgin born. See, my question would be then, was Jesus, the wonder of Jesus, was he haploid? Did he have only the Y chromosome? Because there's nothing from man. There's nothing from Adam in him. You know, we are born sinners because we're born with Adam's sin in us. I'm not saying that babies are guilty of sin. I'm simply saying they are sinners when they're born. David says in Psalm 51, in sin my mother conceived me. I was filled with sin from birth. Well, sin lives in us. Paul says in Romans uh, chapter 12, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 7, Paul says, sin lives in my flesh. Okay? So there's two kinds of sin. There's the fact of sin, which is born in us. And there's the act of sin, which I do. Yet Paul says in, first, in Romans 7, when I sin, it's not I that do it, but it's sin living in me that does it. See, when you become a Christian, you're no longer liable for the sins you commit. You're forgiven. I looked up, uh, had my students look up all the passages that talk about what happens when a Christian sins. When somebody out in the world sins, the end is death. But when a Christian sins, the end is forgiveness, repentance, sorrow, confession. So the, the, the act I do now as a Christian, I'm no longer liable for it because it's the sin that lives in me that does it. Now, this is, this is talked about in 1 John uh, chapter 1, verses 8 and 10. In verse 8, he says, If we say we have not sinned, 
we are a liar and the truth of God is not in us. If we say we have no sin living in us, we make God out to be a liar because he says we do have it. So we're all sinners. But when Jesus was born, the wonder of Jesus is he's born a woman. He's not born a man. That's the first promise God makes after Adam and Eve sinned. In Genesis 3.15, he says the seed of woman will crush the serpent's head. There's the wonder of Jesus. Born like the first Adam, without the X chromosome, certainly without a man in his background. Jesus was born of a virgin. So that's an incredible wonder. And that's a perfect name for Jesus. Look at the next name, Counselor. These are all nouns. Some translations call this wonder of a counselor, which I don't have any problem with. But think about counselor. The next thing that happened in Jesus' life. Counselor, what's another name for that? Advisor. This is the word used for the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. When Jesus was here, I always think of John's gospel in connection with this. The wonder is that the word became flesh, that the light entered the world, and that when he began his ministry, he, he blew away Nicodemus. Remember Nicodemus? Old boy that came by night to talk to Jesus because he was afraid that the other Pharisees had seen, but there were a bunch of guys that came with Nicodemus that were even more afraid than he was. And Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night and says, Lord, we know you came from God because nobody could do the stuff you do if you didn't come from God. And Jesus said, I tell you the truth, you must be born. And all the translations say you must be born again. But the word anothen that's used there in the Greek text translated 18 times in the New Testament. And the only place it's translated again is there. The other places where it's translated 16 times from above. Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, using double entendre, you must be born from above. And Nicodemus hears him say, I must be born again. And so he says, well, obviously I can't enter my mother's womb to be born again. What do you mean? Jesus said, I tell you the truth. Unless you are born anothen from above, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. Flesh gives birth to flesh. And spirit gives birth to spirit. You must be born of the water and of the spirit. Water, that's physical birth. First thing that happens in physical birth, you'll discover, is water breaks and comes out. And every baby that comes into the world, everything that God has ever created, he's always created it through water. Listen to Second Peter 3, 5. God created the universe out of water and by means of water. And then later on, he created Israel. How? Taking them through the sea. Everything God creates, he creates out of water. When he destroyed the earth and reproduced the earth through Noah, he did it with water. Water is an incredible substance. 
it's the only thing that exists in the universe that does not act according to its molecular weight. Those of you who like science, read up on water sometime. Scientists can't explain why water is a liquid. You know, it's supposed to be two gases until it gets to 142 degrees below zero. Then it's supposed to be a liquid for six whole degrees from 142 to 148 below. But for some reason, water doesn't obey the rule. Kind of like the Holy Spirit. The water and the Spirit are always connected in Scripture. Amazing thing about water. Every child born of God has to pass through the water. And every baby born comes out through the water. So God creates everything through water and by means of water. And so here's Jesus telling Nicodemus, you've got to be born of the water and of the Spirit. It's two different births. Of the water is flesh, because the very next verse he says, flesh gives birth to flesh, spirit gives birth to spirit. So don't be amazed that I say you must be born from above. So Nicodemus still doesn't get it. You know, you talk about a counselor. If Jesus had given Nicodemus some Mickey Mouse, sorry, Mickey, some uh, empty, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, junior high answer to, to a guy like Nicodemus, he would have thought, you know, this is nothing. I understand that easily. But Jesus gives him something that he can't handle, and when people read it today, they still don't get it. Now, that's a passage we could talk about sometime. Uh, just going through John's Gospel is absolutely incredible study. Uh, next week, I finish up a series I'm doing at a Compass Church down uh, in Collierville, uh, a study with uh, people who have showed up every Wednesday evening, and we're looking at uh, John 3 and Nicodemus and Jesus. I look forward to it. It's going to be fun. But Jesus is a counselor. He knows how to answer people. He takes people where they are and brings them to where he wants them. The next person that comes to him is the woman at the well. She's not a Jew. She's a Samaritan. And when she asks him a theological question, I'm getting hot. Are you? <laughs> yeah, I see these people going. And I feel the same way. He's talking to a woman at the well, and she asks him a theological question. But first, he says, if you drink the water I'll give you, you will never thirst again. And she said, sir, give me this water so I won't have to come out here and draw. Jesus said, go get your husband and come here. Remember that? And she said, I have no husband. And he said, you're right when you say that. I think that's the point at which he looked into her heart. He said, you're right when you say that you've had, you have no husband. You've had five husbands, and the guy you're shacked up with now is not your husband. You told the truth. And the woman, instead of wanting to talk about herself, immediately says, uh, our, our teachers here say that, uh, that uh, we, we are saved through this, you know, in this area here. We, we believe that, uh, that the kingdom of God is, is here on these two mountains, Mount G G uh, Ebal and Gerizim. And Jesus said, no, salvation is from the Jews. Salvation is not here. But the time is coming, woman. 
you can worship God wherever you want to if you worship in spirit and in truth. And that's another great, great passage. And then she, he, he tells her her life like that, and she says, Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. You know what that means in Samaritan theology? She knew who he was. In Samaritan theology, the one who comes after Moses, the miracle worker who comes after Moses, is the Messiah. And this is the only person in the history of the whole gospel, all four gospels, to whom Jesus says, I who speak to you am the Messiah. He tells this woman, doesn't tell any Jew, because they had a misunderstanding of the Messiah, but she grasped it when she said, Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. And then the next person he talks to is a Roman centurion. So he goes from the highest level Jew to a Samaritan to a Roman centurion and teaches that guy too. And that guy believes on him that quick. Funny how the Gentiles believe and the Jews have such a hard time. Paul says the Jews have a veil over their heart when they read Moses. They don't understand. Jesus said, if you believe Moses, you believe me. To the Pharisees. So he's a counselor. This next phrase, here's the Hebrew. Eo Gabor literally means God of might or God of power. And so she is, I mean, the name here that is given to uh, Jesus is God of power. Now, if you look at his life, at his birth as a wonder, at his ministry as a counselor, and then mighty God, when was that? See, I see that as the transfiguration. When Jesus went up on the mountain with Peter and James and John, and they didn't know what they were getting into. And the other nine disciples were down at the bottom of the mountain trying to cast a demon out of a boy. And they couldn't do it. And the Pharisees came and they started arguing with them about how to do it. Jesus is up on the mountain and Peter and James and John are there and suddenly Moses and Elijah are there. And Peter, James and John recognize Moses and Elijah and Jesus is suddenly transformed before them. And all of them are there in glory. Jesus is in glory and Elijah and Moses. You know, Elijah never died. He, was, he had to be changed to be in glory. Moses did die and was buried on the mountain by God. But here he is with Jesus. And according to Luke's gospel, they're talking about Jesus' exodus. About Jesus' own death. And so here they see Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. And the, the men, the three disciples, fall on their faces. They're terrified. And Peter blunderingly says something about building tents here so we can stay here. And, you know, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And uh, Mark says Peter didn't know what he was saying and he didn't know what to say. Mark got his gospel from Peter. So he's reciting what Peter told him to say. And Peter said, he didn't, I didn't know what I was saying at that point. And then these two men fade away. 
And a voice comes out of the cloud that surrounds them and says, this is my son. Listen to him. In other words, shut up, Peter. Listen, listen to my son. And when they looked up, Moses and Elijah were gone. That signified, Moses and Elijah signify the law and the prophets. And the fact that they are gone indicates that Jesus is the embodiment of the whole Old Testament, the law and the prophets. And in the book of Revelation, the two witnesses, chapter 11, again, Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets. And so here's Jesus called mighty God. The disciples saw him transfigured. Do you know that that word transfiguration is used for us? Used for us twice. For Jesus three times, but for us twice. It, it basically is saying that we are being changed to be like him on the inside. And when this physical body falls away, what's left, C.S. Lewis said, if you could see yourself as you really are, in the spirit realm, you would want to fall down and worship yourself because you're glorious. That kind of glory, that kind of transfiguration that Jesus experienced where who he was shined so brightly that his clothes were transformed to brilliant white. That's happening inside us right now. Second Corinthians 3 says we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another until we become just like Jesus. And 1 John 3 says, when he appears, we will be like him. We'll see him as he is. He's the mighty God. Folks, did you know that Jesus calls us gods? John 10. I said, you are gods, and the scripture cannot be broken. Psalm, Psalm 82. Yeah. You know, that basically tells me this is an incredible thing that's happening inside us. The resurrection of Jesus is taking place in here and transforming us to be like him. We can't see it because the physical body blocks our view. Physical eyes keep us from seeing it. Every once in a while, somebody gets a glimpse into the spirit realm, and they get to see these glorious things. But we don't get to see that at this point. He's the mighty God. And the next word is aviad. I'll write that up here. Abi means father of, you know Abba, and Ad means eternity. Can you imagine a Jewish person naming his child father of eternity? See, I believe this is what Jesus is now, that he is, after his resurrection, he is now at God's right hand, and he is like the father. And he rules over all reality. The same prophet, Isaiah 53, verse 13 says, By his sacrifice, he makes righteous many, and he intercedes for the transgressors. He intercedes for us. He prays for us. And then the last, Prince of Peace, You know, the Jews today say, where is peace? They say, what do you mean, Prince of Peace? 
He came and he didn't bring peace. Well, he came the first time and he didn't bring peace. But there's another time coming. And when he comes back, he came as a lamb first. Now he comes back as a lion. That's right. Came to bring a sword. Came to separate parents from children and brothers from sisters. And he said, uh, "I came to throw fire on the earth in another place, you know, division." But he he will come to bring peace, and ultimately we will share. I'm telling you, when you read Randy Alcorn's book Heaven, you'll get so excited about going there. You know, the imagery in Scripture is wonderful and powerful. We're going to be in a situation. If anybody knows how to build me a perfect home, it's God. And Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. you got a place that's going to be your very own. I think my wife and I will probably be living together in heaven. I don't think sex will even be any of our, it won't be on our minds. You know, Jesus said we'll be like the angels in heaven that don't think about that. It's not a part of our makeup. Uh, Jesus may have been tempted in, in all ways like we are, but he never fell to a temptation. Uh, I believe that God will give us friends who stay with us forever. And uh, there's a great song entitled, Friends are Friends Forever if the Lord is the Lord of them. Just think what it's going to be like meeting Isaiah meeting Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Methuselah and all these people, Adam and Eve, I think they'll be there. I don't think Cain will, but I believe Abel will. Now you can look at the scripture and you can, I want to see David, but the one I want to see most is the one that's got the nail prints. Isn't that amazing? One of our songs says, Wounds Still Visible Above. Yeah. Unique. He will be called Wonder, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, or Father of Eternity, and Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time forth and forevermore. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. God is going to do it. He's going to establish the kingdom of this wonder who was born of woman, who counseled, who raised from the dead, who sits at God's right hand, who intercedes, and who will come back as Prince of Peace. Any comments or questions? <clears throat> Let's pray. Father, thank you for these friends, brothers and sisters. Thank you for the opportunity to study your word. Thank you that you look into our hearts and know every thought we have, every emotion, every hope and dream, 
Father, you are the one who will fulfill all our dreams. You've told us to delight in you, and you'll give us the desires of our hearts. Help us to find our greatest delight, our greatest joy in you. And we look forward, Father, to the joys you have laid up for us from before the foundation of the world. We thank you more than anything else for Jesus, the one who created the universe, the one who makes our lives possible, the one who spoke into our darkness and brought light, the one who bore our sins on the cross. With all the miracles he did and all the great teaching he did, I know he could have talked him his way out of that, but he chose to obey you. I, pr I pray, Father, when we have a choice, we will choose to obey you. Thank you for the second Adam, the man from heaven, who will transfer, transform us from these lowly human creatures that we are being like you and like your son and father we look forward to eternity where we'll be learning from you forever and ever becoming more like you forever and ever infinite in all your attributes we have so much growing to do I thank you for these people I thank you for this church Thank you for Harold and all his work that he does and for Cindy and I pray your blessing on the leaders here and may your Holy Spirit fill us with your word to share with everybody we come into contact with and help us to do it in love Father pray in Jesus name Amen. thank you all so much